Now on RTE Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. As a new book is published entitled 50 Works of Irish Art You Need to Know, I meet its author, Sheila Vranach Lynch, artist James Hanley, whose portrait of Ronnie Delaney is amongst her selection, as well as Peter Murray of the Crawford Gallery and Anne Stewart of the Ulster Museum Institutions, whose collections are also represented in the selection of artwork in the book. I'm joined in studio by Sheila Vranach Lynch, art historian and former curator of Irish art at the National Gallery of Ireland. As author of 50 Works of Irish Art, you need to know, Sheila, can I ask you, what was your rationale for this project? In in what light and understanding can we read your selection? It is to get people to become more interested in Irish art or people who want to start out on the journey. It seems to me that the more you know about something, the more you're able to appreciate it. It gives you, if you like, another layer of understanding. Why 50 works? Why, why did you, you I would have 50? loved 2,000 works. The publishers wanted a book that was actually aimed at this particular readership and using 50 examples to demonstrate the turns and ways in which Irish art developed within its history. You yourself, I think, came to, to art formally relatively late. How, how did that happen? And how do you think then that all of that has influenced or affected your engagement and approach to looking at art? I always loved art because my father used to bring me to the National Gallery as a child. So my first memories are of MacLeese's painting Strongbow and Aoife being told the story over and over again and so on. But when I was in college in the 1960s, you couldn't do a a degree that was centred in some kind of cultural studies. The only thing then you could do, but I didn't know about it, was the Percy Griffiths Diploma course, which was always held in the evenings. So I graduated in languages and then I went back to the history of art when I was 40, because I knew at that stage I really was addicted to reading about art, to looking at art, and I wanted to know more. And somebody said, you know, you can you can actually do art now. Well, you go, why don't you do the Persa Griffith? So I did the Persa Griffith, and out of that, I won the scholarship. Then I added the subject to my existing BA, Then I started an MA. I was very lucky it was upgraded to a PhD. Then I started tutoring and lecturing. And that's how it came about. And you you entered this world that you clearly loved. Was it always Irish art in particular that that drew you? No, I have always been very interested in the kind of means of production, how it was produced, who was it made for and what was its reception at the time. So there were all kinds of extra questions around the work. How did you manage to and how did you go about actually shortlisting work for 50? Because it must have been very difficult over the span of time. You mean you're looking at over 4,000 years to pinpoint 50 works Mm -hmm. uh, that could in some way be seen as representative of Irish art and each one bringing something particular to to the viewer and reader. The first thing I did was set out a timeline for the four over 4,000 years. And then I marked off that timeline into five sections. Ancient art, early Christian and medieval, the 18th century, the 19th century, and right up to the end of the 20th century. And when I had done that, 
I began to think to myself, I might put in this or I might put in that. So I made a provisional list. Beginning with uh, the entrance stone, the wonderful stone at Newgrange um, from 2500 BC. And the second entry then, this great gold collar that so many people will know, Mm. uh, found by a a youngster in County Clare in 1932, I think. Um, And they're, they're so striking, they're so vivid. And you begin to wonder, and you actually say in relation to the gold collar that mm-hmm. um, it suggests a people with a strong aesthetic taste. Yes. Both of those would suggest that. Perhaps one is loath to say a, a people, but maybe a culture with a strong a sense culture. of aesthetic from early on. Do you think that exactly. that's true? I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if you go and you visit uh, Newgrange or Nowth or Douth, for instance, you can't but be absolutely amazed at what you see and the thinking behind these particular places. If you go into the National Museum, of course, it was just so wonderful for me to reacquaint myself with all these early works of art. And I was stunned by the quality. And I thought anybody who thinks that we've no cultural history or is only visual cultural history or it only starts in the 18th century, that's simply not true. So it was wonderful to be able to give some examples to back up that indeed we had a very rich visual culture. Do you believe that there is almost a continuum? I mean, that that you're tracing something of a continuum from then right up to now? Yeah, well, I hate to kind of think continuum suggests kind of a linear line because, of course, as I explain in the introductory essay, it wasn't just continuum and one thing leading to the other. And then as each uh, century went on, the work got better and better. It's not like that at all. And so I explained that particularly, say, in the 17th century, that it was a century of almost continuous land confiscation, plantations, religious rivalries and repression. And of course, these disturbances led to a break in patronage. And so there's no way that you can think of the history of Irish art as a coherent, unbroken story. It goes down all kinds of routes. And that's actually what's so wonderful about it. And that's something we've discussed on this programme in in looking at the five volumes of uh, Irish art and architecture published by the RIA. For you again, the notion of how art can reflect society and vice versa. This must be key to the heart of this book. And is it possible to talk in a simple way about Irish art and something that makes it distinctly Irish over such a long period of time? I don't think there's any problem, providing that you have a a very open viewpoint and you're not going to tie yourself into little boxes or exclusive thinking, if you like. So for me, I don't see Irish art as, as I say, something enclosed at all. It's produced within Irish society. There are elements to it that are Irish, but also it's affected by what's happening outside. I mean, if you think of the Petrie Crown, for instance, the Latin style, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece in the National Museum. All that lovely linear, curvilinear uh, decoration, very elegant. Well, we can't say that's completely Irish because, of course, we know it's not. It's spread right across Europe. So at every stage, there are all kinds of factors impacting either directly or indirectly on the art object. So in a sense, we're also looking at the wider world of art through a prism of what is happening here. 
Precisely. And I don't see art as being, just as I say, being produced, uh, enclosed and having its own exclusive history. And I think that's very important that you put it in this broader context of, well, what's, what's happening in terms of politics, in terms of social movements and so on? Because all of these things affect patronage, they affect the work of art. Uh, the majority of works in the, in the book are figurative. I presume, yes. again, that's that's largely down to that span of time. These are the works that were most popular, the paintings and sculpture from the 18th century on. They are easily available. They have been bought into collections and therefore you can you can see them in galleries. In the title of the book, uh, the 50 works of art, you need to know. Why do we need to know these particular pieces and what difference will it make to us if we do? If you want to find out something, then you, you have to go searching. And so needing is in the search of more information that will give you a real depth of understanding for the history of Irish art. That's where it really springs from. Portraiture, group and single mm. figures featured throughout the book. With that in mind, I caught up with James Hanley about his painting Portrait of Ronnie Delaney, Sportsman 2000, which is included in the book. I began by asking him about the nature of portrait painting and the difference between commissioned work and his own work. I suppose with a commission work, you have to be cognizant of, of the setting of the portrait, the tradition, uh, the expectation of that portrait. It may occupy a, a building, an institution, and have a preconceived notion, um, a lineage. And there will be the expectation on the sitter not to break that tradition and not to be the odd one out in the line and to do something radical. Um, like particularly with the with the formal portrait, to not wear the gown or to wear the gown or for judge to wear the wig or not wear the wig. So they're very simple things and nobody wants to be the person really who upsets uh, a very traditional look in an established lineage. You you accommodate that. Um, but I've never felt compromised, strangely enough. Um, I've always felt that I still I make the painting I want to make and I enjoy that and I enjoy making emblematic images of people. I prefer to make institutional portraits actually because there's something more that I can work with in the sense of some semblance of officialdom and gowns and apparel pertaining to that office. I enjoy that actually and, and uh, love history and love tradition. So it's never a compromise for me to fit in with the expectations of the sitter. The portrait of Ronnie Delaney, sportsman from 2000 in, in this book. Tell me how that came about. Well, an incredible commission, 2000. I can't believe it's 15 years ago. Ronnie was being commemorated to coincide with the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. And Ronnie is still the only gold medal winner in track and field. And it's 60 years next year, the anniversary is Melbourne win. So the Irish Life commissioned it and I met Ronnie and I was delighted to paint a sportsman because there's something very noble and, and heroic about running, I think is the primordial kind of sport and you can't hide and he won the gold in a golden era actually, the, the four minute mile being broken. So it wasn't, you know, an aberration in terms of sporting history. Ronnie was the t at the top of his game and was a world class athlete. So to paint him, we often think that achievements in the past are diminished and that achievements, current achievements are better. But he was running against a world class opposition. So the two considerations I had immediately was that you must 
see his legs as a runner and that the painting should tell a narrative, a story, uh, often portraits if, if it's just a head and shoulders, the person, there's no context. So I wanted to make a painting that somebody visiting the gallery in 50 years' time would be able to understand the achievements of Ronnie Delaney. So I created this faux locker room with posters and memorabilia set very schematically around the central figure, which would give an indication of his prowess on the track and create a self-contained iconic image because I felt his victory was iconic and I felt that you had to represent the man but you had to represent the achievement and the myth and I think that brings to mind a very basic criteria for a portrait of this nature. And I, I'm looking at the at the portrait here and, uh, and it's a very striking portrait. He's a great face. Uh, but I'm also struck by the presence of objects uh, within the painting. Could you describe some of those for us and, and tell me why they're there? Ronnie, of course, is, is a very strong man and he's 80 now, but he was 60 something then. But he was very fit and he still is very lean and fit. So he looks great. He wears the little five Olympic gold circles on his lapel, which is the symbol that you belong to that elite club of a gold medal winner. The medal, incidentally, in those days was not put around the neck. It was given to you uh, in a box. So that's not visible because it'd be hard to show the, that in the picture. Uh, it's represented by the, the lapel. His running shoes are in a mel- are in a Olympic Museum in Melbourne so he had a friend lend me these running shoes which actually uh, ran in the Tokyo Olympics I believe but not by Ronnie by his friend and then I ghosted the running track on the floor and in the background I included the poster the Melbourne Olympics poster from 1956 which is a beautiful simple poster I included the famous photograph of him bracing the tape and I painted that as a blurred photograph I painted the, him um, kneeling down to, to pray, which is a, it's an amazing image, an image of Madison Square Garden, which he, he I think he won every race there for five years when he, when he ran there. And then the iconic image of him on Sports Illustrated magazine, which I felt would relate to an, a future audience. It's like, you know, being on the front of Time magazine, basically. And there was a nice link between the younger face in that and the older man. And you can see the same structure of the face remains and his hair, full hair and very distinctive uh, features from the younger man to the older man. Then you, you mentioned that the legs as well. And, yeah. and that's so strong, you know, the, the, the sense of strength in in the legs and the sense of movement you've captured somehow, even in him sitting down. Absolutely. Well, I, I wanted to do that because I felt you couldn't make him look static and um, emasculated in any way. You had to still show that strength and that fitness. And by the way, the last photograph is his favourite, the lesser known, where you see him in profile uh, running towards the finishing line. And there's a, a, a gap behind which shows the, the space between him and his next, the next the silver medalist was quite substantial. So he won that race very well. And there's almost a sense of movement in what you've done uh, by having the left That's foot forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I just felt that was so essential. You had to show these are the legs that ran him into history and uh, you had to show him. And he's very strong hands and very strong veins on his hand, actually. I wanted to include those and, and just show the strength and physicality of, of Ronnie and a very neat appearance as well. And, uh, and, and, and look, a fantastic face. Painter's dream, you know, just uh, great blue eyes, great strong features. Uh, he was a joy to paint, actually. Did you talk much as, as you painted or and do you generally when you're uh, painting? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm actually not of a sporting background. I was pretty useless at school at sports. So it's always fascinating for me to meet. I have great admiration for sports people. I remember painting Gervin Dempsey once, who was the fullback for Ireland. And I just said to him, like, 
in all naivety, I said, I'm in awe of you. I said that you're the last man before the line who has to catch that ball. I would be terrified. So you always find a, a human, uh, some human connection and, and something that's just very honest. I mean, I, I don't have to know every um, match detail or every uh, sporting statistic to get on with somebody. You can just, uh, sometimes the less you know, the, the better the conversation you can have and the more the more you learn by asking the innocent questions and sometimes the obvious questions. So I'm fascinated by the people that I paint, actually. And I love people and I love making connections with people. So for me, it's a, it's a dream profession because I am genuinely interested. And not everybody is. Not everybody I know portrait artists are particularly interested in the people they paint, but I am actually. And do you like to go back and, and paint somebody again, maybe years later, or, or make um, a drawing or a sketch later? Yeah, I would, and I'm, I'd like to paint Ronnie again now because he just turned 80 and he's, he's, he's still in great shape. So, yeah, it, it would be nice to revisit uh, some people. And uh, sometimes you you see a person again when you finish the painting and you think, oh, I might have done that slightly different, and you see another angle. But it's rare enough. But because when you when you make a portrait, you really set in stone, or in paint in this case, a particular image. You have to settle on one image. And you, when you see the person afterwards in the round, you sometimes get a little bit uh, disconcerted. You, you see maybe other potential uh, ways you could have done it. But I think I have a good knack of finding the definitive way of describing somebody, you know, whether it's a three-quarter or a profile or a front. You know, some people, they're just very naturally, you have to paint them face on. Other people, it's more interesting if they're three-quarter. You know, these are very simple things, but you get a gut instinct, you know, talking and looking at people, what is the most characteristic way of painting them. And do you, do you generally like to paint them in their own environments? Do you prefer to pe- bring people into a studio? I prefer to bring them into a studio. I'm not a painter who depicts people in their natural environment. And I like to construct um, an artificial environment around, As around you have the here. Yeah. Even I'm painting somebody at the moment who wants to reference book ca- a bookcase and books and uh, various memorabilia, but I'm constructing it in my own way. And I, you have to make things schematic. That's the way I like to do it and, and, and make it a very emblematic painting. And I usually paint people. Composition is key to me, so I try to make as strong composition as possible. That's, that's very important. The composition is everything, actually. Once it, the likeness you can get, but the composition, particularly if people have robes or gown or whatever, you have to really nail that. There's nothing haphazard or chance, so I, I do work on that a lot at the, be- at the beginning of the portrait. Can I ask you, what does contemporary painting, in your opinion, portraiture, bring to this form that other contemporary forms of portraiture can't? Well, somebody was talking recently about drawing and uh, they were saying that it's it's time to just reflect. You know, we're bombarded with images and images are photographic and they're not real in that sense. So when you make a mark, there's, there's something very different and distinctive about that. It's about time. It's about a consideration of time, actually, uh, of looking, a process of building up marks. There is no substitute for that, for that sense of looking um, observing and it, it's different it's not a photograph it's not that instant instantaneous image it is something that requires just a whole different way of looking it's very disconcerting for people sometimes to see the portrait when it's finished because paint has a very tactile quality it has a surface it's not flesh it's paint it can look disarmingly real or it can look unreal it can challenge people in how they see themselves if it's roughly painted they might react to that roughness of the paint physically. If it's smooth, they may you know, have an aversion to that. So, so the, the actual technical, physical nature of paint is, is something that you know, has its own innate quality and elevates the, the work into something that is not either real or is not photographic. And we are both used to seeing ourselves either realistically in the mirror 
or in a photograph. And people, they get accustomed to seeing themselves in different lights as well. It's very disconcerting sometimes if you go somewhere and look at yourself in a mirror. That is not the mirror that you normally see yourself in. You see yourself in a different light. It can be very disarming. Uh, You're dealing with a lot of issues around how people perceive themselves, which can be very problematic, and then how it's translated into paint. But paint has, it just has a quality, and uh, it has an historical quality as well. So people feel a certain amount that they're handing over something as well to the artist, you know. They are handing over some responsibility which they have to resign themselves to. You know, there's a veracity to a a photograph which you won't necessarily challenge. You may not like, and people delete photographs they don't like of of themselves. But uh, a portrait is a subjective view, and uh, there are many people who may not like certain aspects. And there are certain painters who are more, they're flatterers, and there are other painters who who don't care. They would not be concerned with the sitter's reaction. Uh, so, <laughs> is it a, is it a burden? Is it a challenge? Is it a privilege? You know, to be working in this very particular area, you know, one that has met the challenge of photography, and maybe had to undergo a kind of radical rethink in the light of that. Portraiture is incredibly popular. It has never lost its its core popularity, and people, if they are strangers to art and they might be bamboozled by lots of aspects of contemporary art, they feel uh, an ownership over a portrait, particularly if it's somebody well-known. They feel very comfortable to voice in their opinion. And that's a great thing. It has a great democracy. People are fascinated by looking at images of other people constantly. Uh, We know that from our celebrity culture and just our general general, uh, Western culture. Uh, So portraiture still has that attraction. And photography has not been the death knell of of painting or of of portraiture. Maybe it has a cachet of prestige and of um, status, um, but it also has... um, as I say, just an unrivaled quality. And for me, it's an incredible privilege, by the way. It's given me a great rich life of meeting extraordinary people and coming in at a very rare and unique access to people. You're sometimes part psychologist, you're part psychiatrist, you're part friend, you're part forensic uh, scientist. Uh, I've, I've just had a, just a, an amazing array of stories and anecdotes and meetings and um, there's a book there and some secrets. Artist James Handy there talking about his painting portrait of Ronnie Delaney, Sportsman 2000, which is included in the book 50 Works of Irish Art You Need to See by Sheila Ranach Lynch. Sheila, why did you decide to include that particular portrait in the book? It follows in a tradition. And I wanted to show that with James's work, he is following the most honourable tradition uh, for centuries. And also it was a work that told a story. It's not just a portrait, but it tells you the life of uh, Ronnie Delaney as well. And it is superbly painted. And of course, it's a bit of sport in there it as well. It is, yes. Um, following on from what James Handy was saying there about about commissions, um, some of the other pieces in the book are commissioned works mm-hmm. too. For example, The Marriage of Strongbow and Aoife uh, by Daniel MacLeese from around 1854. Mm-hmm. What influence would... The commission have had, do you think, on a painter like MacLeese at the time and his approach to making that painting? On the whole, and it's something James raised, usually there is a rapport between the artist who has been chosen and the person or persons commissioning. And I think that's always a a great start. So, for instance, when uh, MacLeese was invited to paint this particular subject by the committee who were in charge of 
interior decoration for the new Houses of Parliament, new paintings, new subjects and so on. They already knew what his work was like, that he was an outstanding academic artist. And I think that just makes it just so much easier for everybody to get on, except, of course, they didn't because he painted the painting for them. But they wanted it as a fresco on the walls in the Houses of Parliament. And he said, oh, no, no, it's too difficult. It's not the right climate. And uh, he wasn't really willing to go along with that. And then they kind of prevaricated. And in the end, he sold this particular work to somebody privately. So it didn't appear on the walls. But he took more commissions from that particular committee and did more frescoes, which really killed him in the end. It was so difficult. Uh, you were for many years a curator of Irish yes. art uh, in the National Gallery of Ireland. Was that particular painting, that uh, the Marge of Strong Wendif, a particular attraction? Yes, uh, because it was the earliest painting I ever remember looking at in a gallery. And I just was so in awe of this huge, huge painting. And so it had a special resonance for me. And when I got the job as curator, I remember going into where it was on display and thinking, well, here we go again, learning so much about it from the time I went in the gallery to today. I mean, it's just a vast treasure trove. How did it come to be in the gallery? Lord Parascourt, he was on the board of the National Gallery and he thought that given its subject matter, that it would be very suitable to be in Dublin rather than hanging in uh, an English gallery. And so uh, he presented it to the National Gallery. That's how it came into the gallery. Coming back to, to some of the broader themes that was raised by the book, I wonder, is a painting open to misinterpretation or sometimes perhaps to too simple a reading at, at times? You know, do you see some of the art you've chosen as having perhaps more value as cultural artefact or, or a reflection of history mm-hmm. rather than work of art per se? Take, for example, the painting of Daniel O'Connell's famous monster meetings by yes, uh, yes. Joseph P. Haverty from yes. the 1840s. Both are works of art. Both relate to either contemporary history, the monster meeting dating from the 1840s, And MacLeese's one, of course, is medieval history. So I think if you start from that premise, there's no doubt about it that the MacLeese painting is much finer in terms of its academic accomplishment. It's absolutely superb than the Haverty one. But don't have any difficulty in, you know, in saying, oh, well, no, I won't put in the Haverty because it doesn't look as good as the MacLeese. Rather, I see a value in both. And I think particularly as an art historian, when you're looking backwards, you're not there at the time, you then can perhaps put it into, you know, a cultural or a social importance that perhaps wasn't recognised at the time. And was it important for you that some of the paintings you chose to include in the book mm-hmm. would represent important moments in Irish history? Yes. For example, those monster meetings. Yes. Uh, uh, the Pivotal moments. That's right. The Haverty and the Petrie, the last uh, um, circuit at Glomrack Noise. Petrie is a magnificent painting, a watercolour. But yes, they're there because they are very good examples of the aspirations of of the period in that mid-19th century when there is this beginnings of an interest in establishing a distinctive Irish art. 
Haverty is one of those artists that actually listens or reads what Thomas Davis had written in one of his essays in The Nation. And what he did in his essay, he listed a whole lot of subjects that Irish artists should be painting because really it was through content that one could establish a distinctive Irish art. Now, I'm not too sure about that, but that's it made sense in the sense that you wouldn't know if an artist was from Ireland or Britain in the 19th century because they were all trained the same and so Davis said no do it this way the subject matter and that's what Haverty does and I thought yeah that is a really good example that will help to underline what actually was happening within artistic and political circles. The Goose Girl um, by Edith Somerville from 1888 is another of, of your selections, a popular painting in the Crawford Gallery in Cork. Peter Murray, director of the gallery, described the painting and put it in a contemporary context for me. It's, it's, it is an immediately captivating painting. Uh, it doesn't depict any grand interior, and uh, the girl depicted in it is not dressed in any sort of formal way. It's really a farm scene. It's it, The scene is set perhaps in a, a kitchen, in the corner of a kitchen of an Irish country house. She's sitting on the floor. She's holding a goose, and she has a very sad expression, uh, large eyes and dark hair. And it's immediately captivating, I think, to the to a viewer to see the surrounding her are the artifacts of, of a country kitchen. There's a large metal pan on the left and a, a bucket, copper or a brass dish in the foreground with perhaps some food in it for the goose and cabbages and onions. It's a very simple painting and it's almost Spanish in its feeling in the sense of the, the, the dark Mediterranean looks of the girl. The girl, by the way, is Marianne and was a, a local girl recruited by Edith Somerville specifically to model for this painting. And is there anything known about about the girl or the setting or the, the particulars of, of the moment of that painting? There isn't, but it wouldn't be difficult actually to find out, I think, because it's not a very old painting. It was painted in 1888. The village where it was painted, Castle Townsend in West Cork, has not changed very much. The house where it was painted and the studio where this was painted has not changed very much. And in that studio, there is now a museum in Drishan House in Castle Townsend of the work of Edith Somerville, which was founded by um, Dan Somerville some years ago and which Tom and Jane Somerville still maintain beautifully and open to the public, full of Edith Somerville's paintings and full of memories of late 19th century West Cork life and culture too. Uh, a very passive goose uh, in in the painting, and, and <laughs> there's a great story about yes, how it might yes, be so passive. Yeah, I must I must absolutely. Sheila Bratnett Lynch has discovered in in, in Edith Somerville's writings that um, the goose was purchased for three shillings and had to be dosed with whiskey and laudanum uh, in order to keep it passive for the duration of of the uh, uh, sitting. Edith Somerville was, I think, she was able to work at some speed because the painting. It has a lovely sort of Velazquez feeling to it. This exposure to realism and, and to this style of painting would have come about 
when um, uh, Edith Somerville had studied art in France and also in, in Dusseldorf. So this painting is in the Crawford Art Gallery and I'd often thought over the years that one of the sort of stories that attached to it was the fact that the girl's expression was so sad because it was her pet goose that was about to be cooked for, for the, Christ, the Christmas lunches, so, some such. But I, I think that's that, that's just one interpretation. Well, with and, a, a lacing of whiskey and laudanum, <laughs> it might make for a very interesting Christmas. Yes. <laughs> Are people particularly drawn to, to this painting. Uh, uh, it is it is one of the outstanding paintings uh, in Irish art of the late 19th and early 20th century. Edith Somerville was patchy in some respects in the sense that she diverted or you know she was excellent at so many things. She was the organist in the local church and she rode to hounds and she had a pedigree herd of cattle and she farmed and she raised horses and she travelled and she wrote books with her second cousin, Violet Martin, under Somerville and Ross, the, 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 the tales of the Irish RM and so on. And uh, she was a very uh, active member in, in her community. She was able to maintain her sense of self, but also she was able to record her life and the lives of those around her in a series of paintings of which is this is by far the best. Uh, but there are other paintings by her in Drishan showing the, the hunt crossing the bridge uh, at, at Renin and uh, paintings of local scenery, because the scenery, of course, around Castle Townsend is, is incredibly beautiful. And she captured a lot of that in her paintings. But the, this one sort of just clicks, I think. It's, it's extremely good. There isn't any trace of awkwardness in it. To what narrative of, of Irish art does this most naturally belong? Realism, but it's not realism as practiced mostly by Irish painters. Edith Somerville, as a result of, of being on the continent, of travelling through France, of seeing works by French Impressionists and by uh, uh, artists such, such as Velasquez that you would have seen, this has given her work a breadth and a sense of um, sense in which this is a real painting. It's the way paint acts on the canvas and the way paint communicates through its own tactility. And that's what Edith Somerville captured in, in this painting. So it's very expressive, much more so than the tight delineation of exact detail, which you find associated with quite a lot of Irish realist painting. Another painting in this book, um, and in a way there are parallels uh, to The Goose Girl, uh, is Patchwork by James Brennan. Uh, it's something in the composition and the, the, the one central character uh, in common. Would you mm. describe this particular painting for us? The, the previous painting is a sort of genre painting. You can interpret it from different perspectives and you can perhaps associate a sentimental story such as the pet goose coming to an untimely end and, and the grief of the girl at losing her pet. But with this painting, Patchwork, James Brennan was the headmaster in the Crawford School of Art in Cork. He had worked on the Great Exhibition in London in 1850, and he was imbued with all of the vision that accompanied the Great Exhibition. He came to Cork then, and he was headmaster, and effectively he ran the uh, whole art school and gallery and the Crawford Art Gallery. He, he introduced lace-making classes. He was very interested in textiles, in weaving, and, and all of that. And that is a, there's a very particular socioeconomic narrative to that, because the patchwork here is representative of the bottom end of the textiles industry. So many of Brennan's paintings relate to the demise of hand weaving, the erosion of local 
crafts and arts and, and industry and the overwhelming um, effect of uh, cheap imported cottons on local craftwork. So uh, there's a series of paintings by James Brennan and they depict the interiors of cottages in West Cork. Before, eight, in, before the 1840s, before the famine, there were something like 10,000 handlooms in the Bandon area. And uh, in 20 years after the famine, they were gone because of the importation of mass-produced factory-made cottons from the mills in Lancashire. So Brennan was part and parcel of that. It's a very complex European and world narrative. The cheap cotton that came to Ireland was partly due to the fact that English cotton was being pushed out of the world market by French Toile de Jouet, made with the Jacquard loom from Lyon. And they had art schools that were teaching craft workers in France how to work at a very high level. In Lancashire, they didn't have the same thing at all. So in 1850, 300 schools of design were set up throughout Britain and Ireland, specifically to try and win back some of that market that had been lost to the French. In 1850, the results were too that the uh, cotton from Lancashire, Manchester and so on was being sold at below cost and a lot of it was ending up in Ireland. So a world of connection within this painting. Wonderful yeah. splashes of colour oh, in it. It's a lovely, a lovely painting in its own. And James Brennan was a very sensitive painter. When we were talking about realism, James Brennan can be quite tight in his handling. But this one is actually beautifully loose and, 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 and very fresh. It was a lovely discovery. I, I remember we, we got that at the Gorry Gallery many years ago. You know, it's one of my favourite paintings by Brennan because of its intimacy, its quietness, because unlike some of his larger canvases, he's not trying to be overly socioeconomic and political in his message, which, you know, in some of his larger canvases, there's perhaps too much of a narrative that you're, you you have to sort of understand and comprehend. It is not at the moment on display, but it will be on display because we're putting on a new exhibition, part of the 1916 Decade of Commemorations, and we'll be looking at genre painting, the prelude to the, uh, the literary cultural revival of the early 20th century, and this will, will be included in that exhibition. Peter Murray of the Crawford Gallery in Cork there on The Goose Girl by Edith Somerville and Patchwork by James Brennan. Sheila, if we take it that these artworks are important socially and culturally, what do they offer that other forms of art documentation do not? Because they are connected with the particular medium that is oil on canvas or watercolour or whatever, they have their own tale to tell. But it doesn't mean because other arts documentation wasn't included in the book that somehow this is on a lesser scale. I wouldn't see it like that at all. Each medium that was used in art has its place within that kind of jigsaw, if you like, of the history of Irish art. Have you seen the understanding of Irish art and what constitutes Irish art change a lot in in the decades since you first got involved in this? Uh, I can remember 
in the 40s, 50s, Irish art was considered to be that art that came from the National Museum. Ancient art, early Christian art. And people who were interested in art, say, from the end of the 17th century, many of the works being on show, for instance, in the National Gallery, there was among people, you know, oh, well, that's the art of the ascendancy. That's not the art of nationalist Catholic Ireland. Now, that broke down when Anne Cruikshank and the Knight of Glynn and Bruce Arnold began to write and to explore art in a much wider time frame. And that was very important. And then, of course, the setting up of the two art history departments in UCD and Trinity. That was very important because... Out of that grew more students, more research and so on. And so, yes, there's been a huge shift. If somebody was asked today, well, what constitutes Irish art? What's your understanding? They'd say everything from the entrance at Newgrange up to contemporary art. Were you surprised, you know, when you went back to look at at the vast amount of material that was there, were you surprised by anything you found and uh, maybe about a difficulty in selecting 50 iconic works that that would fulfil the remit of this book? I did find that when I got to the 20th century, because, of course, that is the century that has most examples to choose from, that it was difficult. I looked at lots of work. Uh, for instance, with Patrick Collins, when I finally kind of decided is it has to be Patrick Collins because his way of painting landscape is just so lyrical and so beautiful and seemed to me almost a continuation of what Paul Henry was doing, but in a new abstracted way. But then, of course, I looked at the works that are in public collections and sure, I nearly tore my hair out trying to decide which one will I choose. And also when I was trying to choose works from Neolithic and uh, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, for instance, I remember thinking, ah, I definitely use the Tara brooch. But when I went in to the National Museum, but I looked at the Tara brooch and I thought it's hugely important. It's mentioned in the essay because of that. But heavens, the Arda chalice is so beautiful to look at and it's well lit and you can go right around and really enjoy it. And I thought, that's what I'm going to choose. So, yeah, there were challenges. And also, of course, writing about work, abstract work, is a particular challenge. Talking about painting, you know, the majority of works in the in the book uh, yes. are paintings, uh, a number of them by women. Earlier, I spoke with Anne Stewart, curator of fine art at National Museums Northern Ireland, who told me about the earliest representation known to be by a woman, East Prospect Giants Causeway from 1739. Uh, Susanna Drury was a rather fascinating but slightly enigmatic figure in the 18th century. We don't know a great deal about her, but what we do know is that she produced two sets of these remarkable drawings of the Giant's Causeway much earlier than anyone else had ever really drawn them or even begun to think about them. So what we have is a remarkable capturing of the causeway, but she was so far ahead of her time. She was awarded a premium for these drawings in 1740 and the Dublin Society had only begun to award premiums the year before. 
sculpture and drawing and for and what what does that mean being well, awarded it, premium? It, it was a prize 250 pounds in 1740 so it's almost like winning the turner prize for 1740 almost in the first year of it being established there was a huge amount of interest in these drawings once they had been exhibited and so then they were very shortly afterwards engraved in london and so anyone who wanted who had enough money to collect them could buy these prints It's quite an extraordinary depiction of this iconic landscape and then particular figures within it. Could you describe the painting for us? Well, we know that Susanna Drury probably spent about three months up at the Giant's Causeway in 1739. Mrs Delaney describes her going almost every day to draw. So what she was really interested in was the geographical structure. People were only starting to realise that these geographical phenomena were were something of of great interest. So her real concern is actually the the geology of the uh, Giant's Causeway. She then decides, or she decided presumably I imagine to make the work more saleable and interesting to set all the figures, the ladies in um, fashionable costume people admiring the prospect but of course they wouldn't have been there that they would have been imagined The materials she used um, quite particular, what were they and do they require particular care and attention to preserve? Uh, she, used, she used gouache, which is um, qu- like quite a dense watercolour on vellum, which is the traditional way that illuminated manuscripts were prepared. And uh, vellum, gouache on vellum was used also by portrait miniaturists. So it's probable that if she had training, it would have been as um, a, a portrait miniaturist. It requires very stable humidity. So the works like vellum or um, any of these um, ancient illuminated manuscripts need to have a very constant temperature. Could you put this painting in a historical context for us, the, the, this fashion for capturing location and topographical detail? I suppose it's it's a big part of of the 18th century. It is, and that's what makes it so interesting that uh, she was a woman and she was really doing this right at the beginning, 1740s. It's, it's the beginning of the Grand Tour and people wanted to travel and see these great natural phenomena. The prints were then included in the French Encyclopedia in the 1760s and so that fed into the the scientific debate at that time as to how the causeway had actually been formed had it been originally it was thought that because it was by the sea it had been formed from the sea but then by the middle of the 18th century people started to think it was volcanic activity so her drawings fed into that scientific debate how did the painting come to be in the ulster museum collection well, there are two. There's the East Prospect and the West Prospect. The the better preserved, the one with the more figures, the one we're talking about, is the East Prospect. They were bought for the Ulster Museum collection in 1971. They'd been in private collections in Dublin before that. Is the painting on display at the moment, or is it possible, if, if not, to see it by request? Unfortunately, it's not on display at the moment, um, but we do have plans um, within the next year or two to certainly have it out for an extended period of time. For you, what's the significance, particular significance of these two paintings if you take them as as a pair? You know, in many ways, it's for us wonderful that it was um, a female artist who made these, in many ways, iconic images that they've never been quite bettered. You know, we still think of Susanna Drury when we think of the Giant's Causeway. So, you know, all this time afterwards, she still created the defining image of probably our most popular and our most important landscape.
And that was Anne Stewart, Curator of Fine Art at the National Museums Northern Ireland, talking to me earlier about Susanna Drury's painting in the book 50 Works of Irish Art You Need to Know by Sheila Branagh Lynch. Sheila's sculpture, much of, I suppose, the object-based three-dimensional work you've chosen is from quite early on. I mean, it, and um, yet one would assume that maybe 20th century into the 21st century is the time when Irish artists would have been making art in many different forms. Uh, sculpture, obviously, very much in, included in that. What was your thinking behind the sculpture-related work you selected? I just wanted to demonstrate that the richness of Irish art was just not simply painting. Now, remember, this is an introduction. So I thought it's very important to foreground sculpture as well, to let people know that they really should be looking at sculpture. It has its own tale to tell. It is uh, so skillful. Commissions are very interesting, like obviously the, the famine ship in Maersk, County Mayo. Go look at that. John and I've always just loved the Dead Christ in Clarendon Street Church and looked at it for years and thought there will be readers who actually go into Clarendon Street Church and may have missed this work. And so let's have examples of sculpture that really show themselves to be incredibly skilled and of a very creative imagination. And then in terms of Art and the Troubles, which I felt it was really important to show people that Art and politics, of course, mix. So I mentioned the artists, North and South, and thought I'd need another book to write. Do you not regret, though, not including uh, one of of those paintings, for example? I mean, it is such an important part of our recent history, of our continuing history. Mm. Uh, Surely there should have been a a painting by one of the contemporary Northern artists reflecting that aspect of our our cultural life and and Mm. political historical life. Uh, Somebody else would, they wouldn't choose, I suspect, a completely different 50, but they would choose works, some of them which would be different. So what I used was the essay, the introductory essay, to really try and get far more works or the names of artists in there. Because people works. will look at the images and they that's will. what they take away. So yes. I mean, it, it does seem, seem a shame that there aren't people like Rita Duffy or yes, uh, Rita Doherty Duffy. in here. Yeah, Rita Duffy is a particular favourite of mine. One Northern Ireland artist who is represented in the book is Jared Dillon and Peter Murray, director of the Crawford Gallery, talked to me earlier about island people painted by Jared Dillon around 1950 and now part of the gallery's collection. He began by describing the painting for me. This painting really speaks very eloquently about the west of Ireland, about the Aran Islands. You know, there's a sense of an enclosed community being cut off from the outside world. A sense of anotherness, isn't there? Anotherness. And in this painting, Dylan's being influenced by the early Christian high crosses and by medieval early Christian art. And also, say, if you think of enamels, the cloisonne technique, they're compartmentalised. And the uh, images on the high crosses are in compartments. And this is Joe Dillon's great skill is that, you know, he did get some tuition in art school. He grew up in Belfast, but he was largely self-taught. He attended evening classes in the Belfast School of Art. And I think it was through study 
himself of Irish art and through travelling extensively in Europe and looking at modern art and being part of a milieu in Dublin in the 1940s, early 40s, during the Second World War, with people you know, such as Louis Le Broque and, and others, of his participation in the Irish exhibition of Living Art. He was a committee member for 20 years. All of those things meant that he was very much exposed to modern art. So he knew about the School of Paris, about Cubism and uh, uh, post-impressionism, of course. It's synthesised in this painting. The use of colour is a little arbitrary bright reds and uh, deep blues and greens and yellows and pinks in in areas where he's not using colour naturalistically. Then he's clearly aware of the whole movement which had started with Picasso and Braque of respecting the picture plane. So the compartmentalising and his adapting of medieval uh, early Christian Irish art into a modern idiom And also it includes a portrait of the artist himself with his canvas under his arm and his satchel heading off to do a painting. Walking down the the, the boreen towards the sea. Walking down the boreen towards the sea. But the boreen is also, there's no sense of three-dimensionality. It's also an enclosed space in itself. So he's almost floating in this bubble of, of light pink, beautiful use of light tones of paint around him. So... You know, this is Dylan's genius, is that he's got a fantastic sense of colour, of tactility, of paint. You can see in that map-like way that often is used by people who haven't, who've managed to successfully avoid <laughs> arts, art, the academic art system. He successfully avoided it, and I think probably consciously so, and he's managed to create his own vision, his own language in painting. You'll always know a Gerard Dylan when you see one. And they're not easy to compare with other artists because he, because of the way he developed his, his own technique. And there's two geese in the foreground, which gives a nice link to Edith Somerville's Goose Girl. There you heard Peter Murray, director of the Crawford Gallery on Gerard Dillon and the painting Island People. Um, I suppose it's always easy for us to look at any book and to and say what's not yeah. it and oh, yeah. say what's absent. Mm-hmm. But here, um, you know, there's no photography, uh, no drawing or installation work. Did you make that decision early on? Because I was told painting and sculpture, that helped me in a sense to make up my mind. But I would argue, you see, that the Bacon, the Bacon Studio is an installation. If it's installed in, sense, it in is, but, Dublin, but, it's permanent. And the thing about installations very often is that they're not permanent. It's, we, it, be this, able was, to, this was one I was going to come to yeah. as, as the last entry in the book. And mm-hmm. Can we really claim Francis Bacon's studio yes. as an Irish work of art? Uh, in a sense, yes, it becomes an installation by being yeah. in, the, in the Hugh Lane, in the Municipal Gallery. Uh, but is it really an artwork? Well, Never mind an Irish well, artwork. I know. It's not a painting and it's not a sculpture. When I went to the Hugh Lane, I thought, I have got to put this in because the general public don't see inside artists' studios. So I know it was kind of slightly outside what I was told to do. The publishers were very happy to kind of end on this questioning note. 
Is it an art object? No, it isn't. It's a whole lot of things, in fact. So I call it an installation. And it's here. Um, <laughs> Sheila Vranach Lynch, thank you very much indeed. 50 Works of Irish Art You Need to Know by Sheila Vranach Lynch is published by Gill and Macmillan and costs €19.99. Our thanks also to Anne Stewart, Peter Murray and James Hanley for their contributions to this programme. On next week's programme, The Art of Sound and the Theatre, an Arts Tonight event in association with the Dublin Theatre Festival, recorded at the Project Arts Centre in Dublin with contributions by Tom Lane, Al McCallagher, Carl Kennedy and Dennis Clahasi. Join me then next Monday. Good night. Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods, is produced by Cleon Inionluan.